This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. All that to say, would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. It's crazy that it is already uh, Christmas time here. Like we are, uh, man, it's a crazy time. So how many of you guys have done Christmas parties already this year? Christmas parties here or there? Uh, the record so far for Christmas parties in our church is thir- one family, 13 Christmas parties. Does anybody beat that? Because we got a free mug for you. I don't know what will be filled in the mug, but I'm assuming it'll, be, it'll bring you Christmas cheer. Um, Shannon and I aren't necessarily Christmas. Like, well, we grew up, we didn't really have Christmas parties that much. I guess we didn't really think about Christmas parties. But when we moved to Nashville in the 90s, is when we first realized about not only Christmas parties, but fancy Christmas parties, bougie Christmas parties. You know what I'm saying? Jamie Brandenburg sitting here in the second row uh, with... Uh, could you stand up just for a Drink that in. It's a little something for the kids. So he, he knows about bougie Christmas parties, obviously. But the first one that Shannon and I ever went to at 25 years old was a, a Christmas party for a guy who was a client uh, named Dino Kartsanatkis. Does anybody know who Dino Kartsanatkis is? Okay, three of you. Anybody... Re- I gotta ask, anybody related to Dino in here? Because this is Nashville, you know what I'm saying? Could happen, could happen. So uh, Dino and uh, Cheryl, who by the way are lovely human beings, um, I never could quite figure out how to bedazzle my clothes uh, in that way, but if I did, I probably would be wearing them. But this party was in the late 90s, and uh, they had a white elephant gift exchange. we actually called him Dirty Santa back in Tulsa, but I don't know if that's a thing. Maybe that's just an Oklahoma thing. But we, White Elephant Christmas Party. And do you, you know the rules of the White Elephant Christmas parties? Anybody know what I'm talking about? So, so you bring a gift, and, and in that gift you exchange, and you fight for them or whatever. And so we, we come to the bougie Christmas party, and it's, it's lovely. The, the food is lovely. The, the pastries are lovely. And, and this will tell you what you were getting into. Like literally, like we walked in, uh, Jeremy, like the front door, there's like uh, five trees with little trees with money on them. There was a $100 tree, a $200 tree, three, four, and five. And, and they would draw numbers at the end and whoever your number, you won the tree. And we don't, I don't think we won any trees, did we? We're not, we're not really winning people. But <laughs> we just don't win prizes. I don't know what it is. But, uh, but we... Um, we want no money, but we're, we're eating pastries and we're enjoying the time. And, and now we're in the circle now for the, uh, the white elephant gift exchange. And uh, the first package is opened. And it's, as I recall, it was like a frame, which I'm thinking a frame. Huh? But Shannon whispers, well, that's like from Restoration Hardware. And it's like $150, whatever. It was, like, it was not like something that we would have gotten at TJ Maxx on a clearance rack. So, you know, the next one comes open and it's, I think this one was from Gary McSpadden, if anybody knows who Gary. And Gary his opens it, maybe I think Gary opened it, and it's like a, a Larry the Cucumber coffee mug. I'm like, oh, thank God, these are my people. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, no, look in the mug. And in the mug was a $100 bill, brand new crisp, and like, white elephant gift party. Oh, no. 
$100 in the... So a, a couple more things are popped out, and then at one point, out pops this gift and opens it up. Remember, 1998, it's a DVD player. Are you old enough to remember how expensive DVD players were in 1998? So I'm kind of, at this point, sinking, because I know what I bought for the white elephant gift party. And my wife, God bless her, sitting there knowing also what I bought for the white elephant gift party. And it, inevitably, the, the gift is open. By now, there are several hundred-dollar bills floating around. There, I think there was more than one DVD player. There, these are legitimate. I would have wanted this for Christmas if it were real Christmas. Went out, pops my gift, opened by, I think, Sean McSpadden. I can't, I'm sure this is my memory is. Mark Twain said, the older I get, the more vividly I remember things that didn't happen. And so I... The, <laughs> I might have been Sean, but it was, uh, but it was a uh, faux leather WWE branded wallet with a chain attached to it for your. And there was no money in it. No, because they looked. Oh, surely there's a hundred dollars in there. No, that's it. And I wish that were the only gift that I brought. Because the second one later, a couple of DVD players later for all I remember, was the box of sea monkeys with, an, uh, with a little uh, aquarium home kit for sea monkeys. There was no doubt in that room who brought those gifts. Nobody wondered, oh, I wonder if that was Randy Lovelady. No, they knew. That was Darren Tyler, because he's the new guy here, and he's the only one that would have been dumb enough to have done that. So, you know, nevertheless, we hit the buffet hard, and because uh, <laughs> I knew we were never getting invited back. So we got some of those pastries and, and wore them out and, and made our way home. And, you know, it's funny, the other night, we, um, at our own Christmas party on, on Friday night, we had a, a staff Christmas party, and we had our own little version of a, of a white elephant gift exchange. And, and honestly, my favorite... Uh, moment of the night was when Mo opened up his gift, which turned out to be a bingo set from... <laughs> so if you're into bingo... That's pretty much how he looked the, on, the whole night until I believe, I believe it was Melissa Bourgeois in an act of mercy. I, I honestly, like, she was like... Uh, it was like the most beautiful moment of the evening because Melissa humbled herself and came and took the bingo thing because she knew that she, you know, she, maybe, I don't know, maybe she can put parakeets in it for all I know. But I, I, she just was being very kind to Mo. And by the way, I might add this a little ending for uh, Dino and Cheryl, who are very wonderful human beings. They actually were the kind people that went and when they came their turn, they came and stole the wallet. And, uh, and the sea monkeys so that their gifts didn't have to go home with these pieces of junk. Uh, but somewhere in my heart and in my mind, I, have to, I wonder, does Dino ever open up his sock drawer and think, I wonder where I got that, that WWE wallet from? Does anybody remember <laughs> where I got that from? Here, here's the problem with me on, on the white elephant gift exchange problem for me. I did not, as the kids say, I did not understand the assignment. I thought the assignment was be funny and hilarious. And if that was the assignment, I was crushing it. 
But that was not the assignment. The assignment was uh, apparently a couple hundred dollars worth of something that people, uh, Brentwood people would go home with very pleased. I did not understand the assignment. And in Romans 8, as we wrap up these last few verses, verses 28 through 39, as we wind down even this year, this is just a reminder of us of what the assignment is. Not to try to bring your best gift, not to try to bring your worst gift, but that Jesus already gave you the only gift that we need, and our only job now is just to respond to it. That is our assignment. Verse 28, and we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is it then that the one that condemns? It's no one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that who raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your word to be the light you promised that it would be for us. Lord, the world around us is as dark as it's ever been, but the word of God inside of us is as bright as it's ever been. And we pray today that that brightness will shine the path for us today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Man, it's Christmas. And one of the problems with Christmas is that in a room like this, in this size, of any size. There's going to be those of you that, man, you've just had an amazing year and you were so fired up for Christmas. And in the same room, there's going to be people who've lost a loved one recently or in struggling right now. And so for you, at a time of year where we're singing joy to the world and we're singing joy this and should, you feel like I should be this, but for some reason it's, it's hard for me this year. And so there's that tension in this. But in Romans 8, I think that we can actually see what, like if the implications of Jesus coming to earth, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I think the NIV version says that his favor rests on all those with whom he is pleased. 
fear not. Those are all the promises of Christmas. If that is true, and it is, how does that influence what we're reading right here in Romans 8, verses 28 through 39? And I want to show you three things that the Christmas story actually directly speaks of what we're reading right here today. It speaks of this durable peace, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, this deep courage, right? Favor on those who he's pleased with. There's a courage that comes from that and an unshakable determination. Fear not, he would say. Fear, we're determined. This, the Christmas promise that started 2,000 years ago is through today and is laid out beautifully in these few verses the durable peace that he promised us, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And he says it here that we know this in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean all things are good, it means that God is working in all things. Right? It's not that all things are good, it's that we have a good God who works in all things. There are bad things in this Genesis 3 world. And there is a good God that works in bad things and makes them good. And we inherently know that. But I think back to the story of Mary and Joseph. And had I have been there, had I have been one of the, well, I guess I wouldn't have been a wise man, uh, probably shepherd, where I would fall into that category. You know, I, mean, I can shovel poop with the best of them, so I'm probably a shepherd. But if you're looking at what's right in front of you, okay, you're looking at a city where a, a man named Herod is about to slay, within just a couple years, every child under two years old. You're looking at the king of the world born in a barn in a feeding trough. You're looking at a teenager who had been disowned by her family for giving them the, oh, well, the Holy Spirit did it line. Wouldn't you, I, I, I can't speak for you. I can speak for me and say, I would have looked at that and thought nothing good could come from this. There's nothing, what could possibly, this is not the way this was supposed to happen. The words of the songs of some old friends of mine, like this is just a strange way to save the world. But wouldn't you know, when you look in reverse and see the way that God's plan worked out, it was exactly the way that it was meant to be. This was 100% fulfillment of the prophecies that it was supposed to be. Everything that happened in that moment from a feeding trough to the gifts that were given to the people that were present was all 100% a part of God's plan to place Jesus exactly where he wanted him to be in the city that he prophesied him to be. I mean, think about it just from this one perspective. In Bethlehem around this time, there was just a few hundred people population. 
okay? Inside of that population, there would have been, let's say, 50-50 men and women. So let's say it's a couple hundred people, 100 men, 100 women, but not just a couple hundred adults. Now we're talking about children. Inside of that, we're going to need to know how many boys and girls there are, and they're going to have to be a certain age. Not only a certain age, now they've got to be in the bloodline of Jesus himself through David, right, all the way back to Abraham. What I'm saying is that there was this funnel funneling all the way down, eliminating cities, eliminating countries, eliminating people, eliminating populations, eliminating specific people, eliminating even the names, and it would have come down to literally one person, and her name was Mary. It had to be Mary. It had to be Bethlehem. And nobody at that time could have done that math looked at that, I would have thought nothing could come from that, and maybe I would have even struggled with my faith because I didn't understand. If I could have been so wrong about that, isn't it possible that there are things in front of me right now that I don't understand that maybe I'm wrong about? Isn't it possible? I think that it is, and in that becomes a durable peace. A durable peace that says in all things God is working together for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose. That was true of the story of the birth of Christ. It's true of the story of you and of me. It was 1994 that I was offered a job at a booking agency in Atlanta, Georgia. I was 24 23, I don't know. I was a dumb kid. And I thought, this is awesome. I'm finally, because let me, I've, I've joked about it, but it's really true. I really didn't have a life plan. My life plan is I hope something neat happens. And something neat was happening. I was moved. I told all of my friends, I'm going to fly to Atlanta. I'm going to interview for this job. I'm going to move in. I'm going to come back and get my stuff and I'm going to move to Atlanta and I get to Atlanta and it was Atlanta Fest 1994. Rebecca, would you have been playing that one? Oh, that's crazy to think about. So I get there and I was mistaken for Wes King about three times. (laughs) That was a way bigger compliment than Alec Baldwin, I'm not going to lie to you. It was a bad year to look like Alec Baldwin. Um, See, and there's, here's the thing, so many jokes, but I'm a pastor and there are children and I'm not, I'm stepping, stepping away from all of them. Um, dang, this being a responsible thing is just sometimes no fun. So I, I get to Atlanta and I'm supposed to get this job. I, look, here's how convinced I was of this. I broke up with a girl so that I could move here. Now, in fairness, I'd already broken up with her once, but it didn't take. And do you know what I mean? <laughs> Remember that old Seinfeld line, why am I the only one working at this breakup? Can we both put some act, you know, effort into this? And so, um, but I'm like, I gave, you know, it's, look, it's not uh, you, it's me, whatever, you know, and so, um, but I didn't, I get to Atlanta and the job didn't materialize and the guy that was supposed to hire me was like, well, this isn't going to happen at all. And now I'm like, I have to go back with egg all over my face. I was so embarrassed. It was so sad. And I get back to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I put my little green apron back on at my restaurant job, my little black bow tie. I was still playing bass here and there, doing a radio show, getting into trouble and do, you know, whatever. But 
I, I was, nothing good was coming from that, except that it was June of 1993, four, thank God for my wife, that I ran into Shannon Anderson at the mall at her job as a manager at a shoe store. And it was just 18 months earlier that she had broke up with me and she gave me the it's not me, it's you speech. <laughs> she, she wasn't wrong. Um, and I ran into Shannon that week. And over the summer, Shannon and I fell in love and I proposed to her. We got married quick because I did not want her to come to her senses. And <laughs> like, what are you doing like next week? No, so we, we got married. We planned this whole wedding out. We, didn't, we literally didn't have anything. And by November, the wedding was coming in December and I got a phone call from my friend. His name was Jeff Gregg. He works creative artist agency. And said, hey man, you still interested in that job? Because we're ready to go now. So we got married in December and we moved in January and my little music career took off. But my point is, if I would have gotten that music career in June when I wanted it, when nothing looked like it was possibly going to work out for me, if I would have gotten it then, I wouldn't have married Shannon. Ethan and his thick and lustrous hair would not be here this morning. My three children would not be. He's extremely thrilled. My girls, it was, my point is, is God was in those things working together, things that I didn't know were possible. Is it possible that there are things that you are facing right now that God is moving and working on your behalf and you just can't see it yet? And I want to add one other caveat that to say that there are some things that when you don't get it, you may not know on this side of life what God was up to. I don't know if it was John Piper, but some smart theologian said that there are thousands of things that God is doing at any given point, and if you're lucky, you might know one or two of them. Because some of you lost your job and you didn't get a better one of some of you lost the girl and you didn't get her back. Like that, that didn't happen for you, but can you trust that in all things God is working together for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose? Because what he says ultimately is not that you're going to get a good thing every time you lose a bad thing. It's that he says in verse 29, 30, as he goes on, that the ultimate goal is not that you get something good, is that you become something good. You become in the image of him, of Christ himself. You see, your problem, my problem, is that you think your biggest problem is your circumstances. But your biggest problem is not your circumstances. Your biggest problem is your character. Tim Keller said that there are some things in your life, I'm going to get this, hopefully I'm right, that circumstances can't destroy your life in the way that character can. And there are some things in a way that we're going to get our character built. I'd love to say that every character and thing that I've encouraged, all those things I've developed was because somebody whiteboarded it out for me, but that's not how it works. No, it works when you're in the middle of something painful, when you're in the middle of suffering. And those of you, you CrossFit people who are nuts, 
me tell you what we love about you. You're willing to suffer to get something on the other side, which is why you guys listen to a prophet like David Goggins. Only the CrossFit people laugh at that. Because David Goggins says this, if you're willing to suffer, and I mean suffer, your brain and your body, once connected together, can do anything. And that's the guy saying that without Christ involved. My point is, is that in those circumstances, the thing that you wanted that you haven't gotten, the thing that you thought you needed that you haven't gotten, that it's entirely plausible that God is moving you in a way to build you into the image of his son, to build you into the person of courage that he wanted and wants you to be. I believe with all of my heart that the people that surrounded this church family in the last year, in the middle of COVID lockdowns in the middle of fear, in the middle of the world losing its mind, the people that gathered here, I believe with all my heart, are people who have suffered, who have had risk, who have seen God move, and because of that, you had a supernatural courage already inside of you. You were prepared for such a time as this, long before this year. And those that didn't, Time for them. They'll get some suffering. They'll get some character. They'll get some whatever. But for us, those things that maybe you didn't see all along the way, I think about every time I almost got you know, beat up in Togo, Africa, every time we almost went off a cliff in Haiti, every time the plane almost didn't make it and we survived anyway, every time a car crashes in Asia, I can't say the country, with Eric, you start to build this courage inside of you, but it didn't come because you just decided to be courageous. It came because God built that inside of you through the circumstances that you would have done anything to have avoided, and God used them instead to build them you into the image of his son. The peace that you can have inside of all this is summed up in one word, one sentence. God has a plan. And if you can't see it, it doesn't matter. He still has a plan. And your faith is, do I believe he has a plan or do I not? And if he does, then I can take a step back and in peace and then move into the deep, deep courage that it builds when you have that kind of peace in your life. And that deep courage, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. I love that because those are all the things, by the way, that faced Jesus at his birth and at his death. Shall those things separate Jesus from the love of God? No. In fact, the only thing that would separate Jesus from the love of God was on the cross, and it was him taking your sin and my sin on him, and that separated when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was Jesus being separated from the love of God, not by sword, not by a spear, not by persecution or injustice, but by my sin. And because of that in him, in his willingness to do that for us, he who knew no sin became sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And because of that, nothing, none of those things can separate us from the love of God. But listen, I want to show you something that you may not see it immediately, but if you see it now, you'll never not see it again. Look at the first word of 35. Who shall separate us? That is a who question. But look at verse as it goes on. 
trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. Those are what things. He asks a who question and answers with what things. And the courage that we get from that is that there is a who behind every what that is thrown at you. And that who started in a garden of Eden, challenging Eve. You know God's holding out on you, right, Eve? You know that if you would just listen to this, that he, he's holding out on you. The, the, so she's getting the who, right? Who this, who that. But the what is, when you read this list of what's, aren't they things, when you, especially when you talk to somebody who's really struggling with their faith, often, if not most times, it's because of what has happened to them, not who did it to them. And if you understand the who, and the who is the enemy, the, the, the dark... Satan, the, the fallen angel, the, the one that was resisted and took a third of the angels with him, that is your enemy. And if you realize what Christ did to him on the cross, you realize the big picture of what's happening to him and that you have authority over him, that there is no what that he can throw at you to separate you from the love of God. Remembering who the who is, the who that is under your feet, the who that he gave us authority to trample on. Jesus said, I give you authority to trample on serpents and on scorpions. These are what? The, the famine, the circumstances, the, the earthquakes, those are all what things that are happening, but there is a who behind them, and that is who we have victory over, and he cannot separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That kind of courage is the courage that all of us, if we'll just let that sink into our soul, let the Holy Spirit come on us with that. Burning away the fear and allowing it to become courage. You see, courage doesn't mean that you aren't afraid. Courage doesn't mean that there isn't a fear in you. Courage just means what? You did it anyway. But here's what's amazing. When you start doing that, when you start doing, I'm afraid to do this, I'm afraid to step out in this ministry. You know, Jeremy, I know God's been working with you guys and some hearts and some, some ministry stuff. And as you guys are stepping into that kind of a ministry, it's kind of a scary thing to do. But this weird thing happens. The fear, the insecurity, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. What does the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 refer to? Fire. When fire hits flammable material, right? And in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians, it speaks about the wood, the hay, the stubble that burns away from you. When the Holy Spirit of fire hits the burnable material, what does fire on a burnable material bring? Energy, dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit. The fear not, I don't think is a idea that I'm just gonna pretend that I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid. It's, I'm doing it anyway, allowing the Holy Spirit, and as the Holy Spirit comes on me, burns that away, that stuff becomes an unliterally, just deep courage inside of you to do it anyway. And there's a thing that happens. I'll never forget this moment with David Whetstone. We were in a 
uh, motorcycles in northwest Africa. It was just, if I remember right, it might have been just you and I. And I'm, I mean, we're like middle of nowhere, and this is like near the Burkina Faso border, crazy stuff going on. And look, I'm just a little white trash kid from Nebraska. Like, I got no business being anywhere. And I live my younger life with a lot of fear. Fear of what if I get rejected? Fear, what if it doesn't work out? Fear, what if I get killed by Muslims on a motorcycle in Africa? Like, those are fears. But something happened that day on that motorcycle. As we were riding, I had no idea where we're going. And it didn't look like we were getting anywhere nearer to anything. And I realized for the first time, that moment, this weird feeling I had. And it was that I wasn't afraid. I should have been terrified, and I wasn't. And it wasn't naive, it wasn't Pollyanna. I was fully aware of the dangers that were around us. But as I stepped in and allowed the Holy Spirit to burn away the wood, the hay, and the stubble, it created this fuel. It created this energomos. Energi- oh, Lord, I'm going to get Michael Easley on the phone. Energimos is the Greek word for energy. The wood, the hay, the stubble that's burning, that it speaks of, leaving behind only what? The gold, the silver, the stuff that remains. Brothers and sisters, the more we get into Romans, we, we're hearing less and less about the law. You're hearing more and more and more about the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit comes on you, as the Holy Spirit indwells you, baptizes over you, it sets you on fire, burns away the stuff. And so it's not fear not pretending not to be afraid. It is fear not because I stepped out anyway and the Holy Spirit burns it away to the place where now I have a courage that I can't possibly articulate any other way. The last thing is the unshakable determination. Once you've got that kind of courage, once you've got that kind of peace, this determination that comes from no in all these things. And what things? Famine, nakedness, sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. I'm convinced Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, present, future, nothing will do, nothing, right? Nothing can keep us. Nothing uh, in all of creation will separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus. And Christmas, man, it tells us really simply when he says, glory to God in the highest. Back in verse 30, he says something here. He says, he who justified, he also glorified the same glory that God has. And the word glory, I say it too many times, but we have to keep in the front of our minds. The word glory means weight. It means like a heft, purpose, and meaning. So when you say glory to God in the highest, it's him being glorified above everything. All the purpose of everything in the universe comes down to him. And not only did he justify you, justified by dying for you? If you've ever wondered, do I even need to be here? Is there any purpose for me here? How can I even justify my own existence? The God of the universe became a man, became one of us, left behind heaven, came to here specifically to die for you in your place because you are so loved by him that he would choose to do that for you. You are as justified as you'll ever be. 
that justifies your existence. If I died for you, you'd think, yeah, you think that guy thinks I'm important. If the God of the universe did it, you know you're important. And so now that he's justified you, he is now glorifying you. And by glorifying you, it means now you have the weight, the heft, and the purpose that comes from someone who knows that my purpose is justified to be here, that he loved me that much. He who justified you now has glorified you. And a glorified person who knows your purpose, a glorified person who knows that you have been justified and that now you have the weight and the meaning and the purpose of the entire universe that all these philosophers for millennia have been trying to figure out. It came together in Jesus. You ever wonder when it says that the the word became flesh and dwelt among us? John chapter one, he uses the word logos. That was a word that John purposefully stole from the Greek language because in the Greek language, the word logos was the word that they used to say, if you can discover the purpose and the meaning of life, it was called the logos. And if you could discern that and it came from inside of you, if you could discover that, then you would have the purpose of life. And John very specifically said to the world, Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the purpose. Jesus is the weight of it all. And because of that, now when I lean my logos onto him, To put it differently, he put it much more simply, if I'll build my house on the rock and not on the sand, then the logos, the purpose, and the meaning, and that determination, let me tell you what, in this past year and a half, I have been more determined than I have ever been. And here's why I believe with all my heart. In the last year and a half, any hope that I had in the government figuring this stuff out, any hope that I had in the science, TM, figuring it out? Any, any hope that I had in some sort of a consensus of humanity and the who and the UN, any hope in that has all been shattered. And any house that's built on that will sink because it's shifting sand. This past year, my determination is not because I've got some itch to fight. It's because I have built our house on the rock, the logos of Jesus, the purpose of all of life. And I encourage you in this Christmas, remember that it was a rock that Jesus's body was laid in. It was a rock that his body was laid on. Both are empty because Jesus is no longer laying on the rock. He is the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Merry Christmas. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this rock, you're building your church. Heavenly Father, it is your purposes that we are here for. Heavenly Father, you sent Jesus not just to be a good example. He's a great example. You're too good of an example because we'll never keep up with it, Jesus. No, you didn't send him to be an example. You sent him to be our sacrifice, our propitiation, so that we now could be clothed in his righteousness. We hold on to that and to nothing less. And in this Christmas season, I hope for me, for my family, for my church, Jesus, for your church, that we'll stop holding on to Christian leaders. We'll stop trying to put our weight on 
celebrities will stop trying to put our weight on things that can't possibly bear it and put it on the rock of salvation. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Merry Christmas.